If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. We're going to do something today where I want to give you a reason for missions. I want to walk through the book of the first 10 chapters of the book of Romans and give you a reason for missions. I was uh, thinking about this this summer, actually. I was... um, at the Southern Baptist Convention, and while we were there, David Platt, who's the president of the International Mission Board, shared the story of what has kind of come to known, or the person that's come to known as the first um, international missionary from America. And it was in the year of 1810 when a group of people were getting together, congregationalists, people that were um, not Baptist, congregationalists getting together, and they were discussing whether or not they were going to form a board to send people overseas. There was this group of seminary boys, young guys, that were saying, we want to go. We feel like we're supposed to go to the nations. And the question in 1810 that reverberated throughout that meeting was, why? Why are we going to do that? What are we going to do? In fact, one of the older men's there said, there is too much work at home. We don't need to go on a wild goose chase all around the world. Why don't we just focus here? One of the young men there that day was very convincing and convinced the men to fund his trip to a place called Burma, which was one of the most closed countries in the history of the world. One of the most violent countries in the history of the world. And that guy's name was Adoniram Judson. He's known as the first missionary from the United States. What's interesting about him is that on his way to Burma, he was sent as a congregationalist missionary. On the way to Burma, he was reading his Bible. In particular, he got stuck on the description and understanding of baptism. And on his way to Burma, as a congregationalist missionary, he converted to Baptist. The first thing he did when he got there was to write the congregationalist and tell him he had converted to Baptist. He was no longer their missionary. And the second thing he did was to write a letter to the Baptist and say, congratulations, you have a missionary in Burma. I need you to support me. Like, you didn't know this, but guess what? I'm here, right? I don't know, I'm Judson. What's interesting is um, he would spend the next 40 years of his life telling people, translating the gospel, telling them about Jesus. And it was a life of incredible hardship. At that meeting where he had presented his desire to go, he was a single man. But he decided he didn't want to go to Burma on his own. And he had met someone that week who he decided should be his wife. And so, less than a month after meeting, he was married. And Anne went with him to Burma. While in Burma, he and Anne lost a child to stillbirth. And then he had to go back to the United States to raise some support. And while he was gone, he got a letter that his wife and child had died. He remarried to another missionary in Burma. And she died and lost a child while on the field in Burma. He got married again and he would spend his remaining days in Burma in sickness. During his time in Burma, he was imprisoned where he would sleep at night, hung up by his ankles with his head resting on the floor. They did have a child that survived and his wife was so sick in the process of that, she had developed something from the area that he had to beg the women of the village to feed his daughter. At the end of his life, as he was on a steamship coming back to America to try to get medical attention for what he had, He was asked about whether or not it was worth it. And he said, I have only one desire 
to finish the work that God has given me to do and to die a man who is a missionary to the Burmese. Your stories like that and you're like, okay, why do people do that? Is it worth it? What's the point? What's the reason? And so today what I want to do is walk through a few verses throughout the book of Romans, the first 10 chapters. Because as Paul writes Romans, most of us that know it think of it as a theological book, and it is. Think of it as a book that shares the gospel, and it is. The Roman road shares the gospel plainly. But if you read the book of Romans, what it really leads to is the verses we're going to lead to in chapter 10. That is a reason for missions and the reason that we do what we do. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 1. Now, I want to be completely honest with you. We're going to talk about some concepts today that some people don't like and that some people reject about Christianity. But I just want to be faithful to what the Bible says. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you Paul's logic for missions in six steps. And the first one's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where we begin. And it says this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. He goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. The first step that Paul makes in describing why missions is important, why we go, why we send, why we support, is that all people have heard about God. All people have heard about God. Now you say, wait a minute, what do you mean all people have heard about God? I mean exactly what the scripture says. Everyone is aware that there is a God. Now, Paul will give us in this chapter, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but he'll give us two reasons that people know they're a God. First of all, is because they look at the wonders of creation. They see the world that is created around them. They see what is created among them. They see the beauties and the wonders of creation. We stare into the night sky and we see the stars and we get a sense that there is something bigger than us out there. We look into the eyes of our fellow human beings and we know there's something special about humanity that is different from everyone else. When I look into my wife's eyes, I realize that there is something special about her. And not just because she's more intelligent than animals or not just because she is different on a higher level of thinking, not because humans are just that, that there's something different inside of us, the way we feel, the way we live. We are now officially a two-pet household because four kids wasn't enough, all right? We have two pets. We have our dog, Stella, who um, we love dearly. And uh, we then have a cat that has somehow stuck around um, that I just call the cat, all right? Um, The cat has a name, but to me it's just basically the cat, all right? And so here's the thing, all right? So so these animals, and by the way, we we still have a vote on a weekly basis of whether we're keeping the cat or not, and it's still five to one. Um, And the cat, I just want you to know this, the cat, every morning thinks that, I think it is attempting to win the one vote over because it cannot get away from my... You know that thing cats do where they go in and out of your legs and... 
That happens to me every morning, all right? All the time, all right? So anyway, what was I talking about? Okay, so it's evident when you look at that cat or you look at our dog Stella, as much as we love Stella, as much as the rest of the family loves the cat, as we look at them, as much as we love them, there's something different about humanity. There's something we know, something we process. There's something in our hearts that is different. When I look at Susan, when I look at my kids, I don't think, boy, I am just looking at a biological machine that developed through chance. The second thing Paul says in Romans we know is not only that we see creation, but that within us we know that there is right and there is wrong. That we have a conscience that tells us that right and wrong exist. And if we know that right and wrong exist, then there must be someone, there must be something, in our case God Almighty, who sets the standard of right and wrong. And I know we live in a world that has tried to convince us for the last few years that what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me. But there are certain things in our culture that come to the surface that people say, no, that is never right. Over the last few weeks, the the veil has been pulled back on what's happened in Hollywood and politics when it comes to relationships between men and women. And horrible allegations have come from people on all sides of the spectrum. And no one in their right mind has said, you know what, that's good for them because that's what they think. Everyone has said, it is wrong. And if we know that there is a standard of right and wrong, then the only question that comes is, where do we get that from? Everyone has heard of God. Everyone knows of God. Somebody say, what about atheists? We'll talk about this in a minute. But that is an acquired belief. That's not something that you're born with. In fact, every culture that has ever been discovered in the history of the world has some sort of religious belief about a God that exists or a spiritual world. Two of my favorite stories about that. One is about Helen Keller. Do you all remember Helen Keller? The great story, amazing woman, born without the ability to to see, born without um, the ability to hear. And there was this um, teacher of hers, Miss Sullivan, who would come and develop this system being able to communicate with her. Miss Sullivan was a devout Christian, a believer in Christ, and she desperately wanted Helen Keller to know about that. And so she called one of the most famous preachers of the day, a guy named Dr. Philip Brooks, and asked him to come explain God to Helen Keller. And so Dr. Brooks would talk, and as Dr. Brooks would talk, um, Miss Sullivan would use the hand and the pressure points and all that to communicate to Helen Keller the stories about God. And as she got to the idea about God, suddenly something changed in Helen Keller's face. And she said this, oh, I know him. I've known him for a long, long time. I just didn't know what to call him. It was within her. There's also this remote tribe of Indians in Ecuador that some missionaries got to. They shared Christ with. Some of them came to belief in Jesus and he said that, I, one of the guys says, I know many of you Westerners think, in fact, this particular group of, of indigenous people were cannibals. He says, I know some of you think that they didn't know any better, that we just ran around killing people and not worrying about it. He said, that's not true. We always knew there was a God somewhere. And we knew he was not very happy with what we were doing. So the first thing in the gospel is that all people have heard about God. There's second thing in that first passage we looked at in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and 19 says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The second thing that we see in this passage is not only have all people known of God, heard of God, but secondly, everyone has rejected God. All of us have rejected him. Every person in the history of the world has rejected him. We've rejected him because we disobeyed what we knew to be right. We all have this thing inside of us that tells us right and wrong. And when we choose to do something different, we go against God and we suppress the truth. We disobey what is known to be right. Even people that aren't religious have a standard of right or wrong and they don't live up to their own standard of right and wrong. Secondly, we sought things that we should have sought God for. We have sought it in other things and so we have placed things in our lives above the Creator God. We have given our lives to wealth and to relationships, the approval of others and success, sex, whatever it is, before we give our heart to God. And some have gone so far as not even to act like they believe in God in the first place. Paul says, not only has everyone heard of God, everyone has rejected God. And because of that, we see in Romans 3, 10 and 11, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. And so not only do all people know about God, and not only have all people rejected God, but because of our rejection of God, all people are guilty before God. Makes sense, right? If our hearts naturally reject God and all that He is have rejected His rule, then we deserve His wrath. If you put your fist in God's face and say, No, God, I don't want you to be God. I want to be my own God. I want to make my own decisions. I want to go my own way. I want to do what I want to do. If you do that in front of God, it makes sense that you deserve the wrath of God. And Paul says, that's exactly what we have done. Listen, a lot of times we try to minimize our own sin and the depravity of our hearts. And we talk about sin like the worst thing that we could ever do is to do drugs or to have sex with people we shouldn't. But the truth is, Scripture teaches us that all sin at its core is cosmic treason. And we have walked away and committed treason against God Almighty. In our hearts, we resent God. We want to make the rules. We want to do it our way. We talk like God is wrong and letting bad things happen to good people. The problem is there are no good people. We have all rejected the Lord. And so when you put those first three points together, you get a pretty dim picture, right? All people are guilty before God because all people have resisted the rule and the glory of God evident in creation. That means that we are all guilty, not because we haven't heard, but because what we've heard, we've rejected And so the point of all of that is to say that every person on the face of the earth who is living today without Jesus is condemned by their own sin. Now, people out in the world don't think that's a logical thing to believe. I uh, 
heard this week uh, an illustration from uh, J.D. Greer, who's a pastor in North Carolina, that talked about being on a plane. And he was on a plane. He was going to a small college um, in North Carolina area. Well, growing up, he was going to that college, and he was flying across the country, and he got sat next to a girl that was going to Harvard. And he said, so I thought, small Bible college, Harvard, we've got a lot in common right here, right? So he begins a conversation with her and he tells her about what he's going to school for and that he wants to follow the Lord and he wants to be a missionary one day. And she says, I think that's great. I envy the direction you have in your life because of that belief system. And he says, well, you know what? You, you can believe that too. You could have that too. And he said, I began to share the gospel with her. He said, now, I just want to be real honest. My motives weren't exactly pure at that moment. He said, here she was. She was a very attractive Harvard student. And I thought, I'm single at the moment. She's single at the moment. Maybe this could work. I got an arm Judson. We could be married. She can make all the money going to Harvard. I could do the mission work. And he says, as I began to explain to her the gospel, she looked at me and she said, well, that's, that's cool. That, like, I, I'm really glad you believe that. She said, I'm awesome that you found that way. And he said, now listen, it's not just any way. It's the only way. And he said, she looked at him with the look of complete disbelief and says, you don't actually believe that, do you? He said, yeah, yeah, I believe it's what the Bible says. Jesus is the only way. And he said, it's almost like she waved her hand like a Jedi mind trick. Like, you don't really believe. He goes, I do. And then she said, No intelligent person in the world today could ever believe that to be true. But here's what I would say. The logical progression of what we've talked about makes it that that's the only truth that you can believe in. If you believe that God created us with an innate sense of what is right or wrong. And we have all chosen to reject him and go our own way. That the only solution to that is that we stand condemned before him. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what I love about that passage though? Is that Romans 3.23 that tells us all has sinned is right in the middle of Romans 3.21-24. through 24. When you get to the fourth point, you begin to see the transition and it tells us this. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, yes, all of us are sinners. All of us have been reject have rejected God and as a result are condemned before him. But scripture also teaches that everyone who trusts in the name of the Lord will be saved. In these particular verses, there are four key ideas here that I want us to think about for a moment. And the first is that it is a gift. That God's salvation is not something that we are paying for. In fact, it's apart from the law, which means we have no reason to boast. That doesn't mean the gift is free because the gift always costs the giver something. Do you know where I learned that principle real well? Is as a parent at Christmas time. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Like, I love giving gifts to my kids, but guess what? It costs me something. We joke about, if I bought everything on Luke Larson's Christmas list, we would be in bankruptcy court, all right? Luke likes to find the most expensive thing he can. The other day he found a drone. It was only like $1,500. That's all he needed. That was after he'd seen the de- the uh, the um, Star Wars Lego set that was five hundred dollars. 
right? Like, look, we're going to have to get some expectations down. We're going to have to lower those, all right? And this gift is free for us, but it cost Jesus his life. There's a second word in this passage that I think is just an amazing word, and it's the word redemption. The word redemption means to buy back. It meant that Jesus paid the price for our sin. It means that the wrath of God that was to be displayed upon us, Jesus took it upon himself. Jesus is the one that stood in our place as the punishment was coming, and he swallowed it whole. Jesus stood in our place and the full fury of the wrath of God was unleashed upon him. And he absorbed every ounce of it in our place. And then he took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the very bottom, turned it over and said, it is finished. He absorbed it all. And in doing that, he bought us back. One of the, uh, one of the things that I'm doing right now that I love doing is teaching, um, I'm teaching for Union Old Testament Survey. And I love teaching Old Testament survey because a lot of times in that class, I, I, to go to Union to do nursing work or to do business work or to do any program at Union Engineering, you have to take Old Testament and New Testament. So most of my students are not religious students. They're not there for church stuff. And so a lot of them have never read the Old Testament, never been familiar with the Old Testament. Maybe some of you are like that. You're not really familiar with it. And so I love teaching it because it's like I'm opening new things for them all the time. And so the first thing that I do is I, we introduce ourselves, go around them, introduce ourselves. And then um, Union has a huge whiteboard in all their rooms. And so from, from, one, like, from one part of that screen to the other, right there in the middle, there would be a whiteboard that long. And I take out a marker and I say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to list every story you can think of from the Old Testament. And so we start on there and they start listing. And you've always got a couple of people that are kind of maybe maybe somebody that's in there for becoming a pastor. And they like to pull out some obscure stuff, you know, really show off their knowledge. And then people that you have some discussions like, well, what about Jesus? No, he's not in the Old Testament. He's a New Testament guy. Or somebody will say a story. I was like, that's a great story. But that's not in the Old or the New Testament. It's not even in the Bible. But it's a great story. I'm proud, glad you have that. And we get all that stuff. We start writing stuff up on the board. And there's always a story that people don't put on there. I've taught it three times. Nobody's ever put it up there. If they ever do, it's going to mess up my whole teaching for the next phase. All right, so you don't tell them about this. And I tell them, there's a story you haven't listed that I believe encapsulates the entirety of the message of the Old Testament. I'm like, what, do you, what is it? What is it? So I say, it's the story of Hosea. Now, some of you grew up in church, you know the story of Hosea. First words of Hosea is that God comes to the prophet Hosea and he tells him to go marry a prostitute. And so Hosea goes and marries a prostitute, takes her into his family, makes a home with her, has kids with her. But it's evident through the names of the kids that she has not been faithful to him. Because the names of the two kids are unloved and not mine. Now, we read them in the Hebrew and so it's Loami and Loruamah. But you can imagine introducing your kids. Hey, I'd like you to meet my kids. This one's not mine and that one's unloved. All right? That's harsh, right? That's a harsh playground names right there. His wife leaves him, goes back to prostitution, and God comes to him a second time and says, I want you to go buy her back. Now, I want you to picture this for a minute. A prophet of God has married a prostitute, brought her in. She has left again, gone away, and God says, go buy her back. So husband has to go to the town square where she is being auctioned off as a prostitute and has to buy back his wife. 
And that process is called redemption. He buys her back. And what scripture teaches is that what Jesus did for us, because we all had heard of it, God, we had rejected God and we are condemned by him, is that through his death on the cross, Jesus bought us back. He paid the price for our sin. It was completely undeserved. It says the word grace in there. That means that it is completely undeserved. People all the time tell me, I just wish life was fair. No, you don't. The gospel is completely unfair. Because to be fair means that we would see the punishment and the penalty for our sin. We would suffer it ourselves and God's judgment would be on us. It is not fair at all because Jesus, who did not deserve it at all, bore our punishment upon himself. And all that it takes to receive that gift is simply to believe. Gift, redemption, grace, believe. You see, the first four steps are so vital. We heard of God. We rejected Him. We were condemned before Him. But Jesus provided a way. The fourth thing we see in this passage or in this, this description from Romans is that God has made a way of salvation for His people. For all people. And it just requires belief. It just requires acceptance. It just requires saying yes to the offer. But then Paul gives what all of this has been building for. So for ten chapters, he's been laying the case that if you believe in Christ, you can be saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That we are all sinners, but that we can be saved through grace, through a gift of God. And then even in chapter 10, verse 13, he says, And those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it all leads to the next verse, where he reminds us, that people must hear the gospel to believe and be saved. Romans ten fourteen and 15 says, How then can they call on the name they have not believed in? And the answer to that is, they can't. How then can they believe without hearing about him? And the answer is, they can't. How can they hear without a preacher? The answer is, they can't. And how can they preach unless they are sent? And the answer is, they can't. He says, how can they call when they haven't believed and how they can believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher and how can they preach unless they are sent? So all of Romans has been building to verse 13. And the first 13 says, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says immediately after then, how can they if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if they haven't had a preacher? And how can they have a preacher if no one is sent? The truth is. The reason we do missions is because it is the only hope for the world to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Without missions, without International Mission Board, without the North American Mission Board, without our mission trip to Los Angeles, to Brazil, to Lynch, Kentucky, to all over the world, without it, people will not be able to believe because they have not heard. And if they have not heard, they are condemned before God because they have rejected what they know God to be. And the simple truth of Scripture is in the Bible, the gospel always goes forward through human beings telling the story. In Acts chapter 10, 
Here's a story of a guy who's a God-fearer, a guy named Cornelius, who's outside of Jewish faith. And he is sitting there one day thinking about things and he has a vision from God. And the vision from God says, I've noticed you. I've seen you. I know that you're seeking. I know you want the truth. Go get Peter. Now, of any story in the Bible, that would have been a moment when God could have said, let me explain the gospel to you and you accept it right here. But instead of that, he says, go get Peter, because in the Bible, he always uses human instruments to tell the gospel. And Peter comes and shares the gospel with him and he's saved. He relates the story to Peter again, and the idea behind it is that if the gospel is going to be shed or spread all over the world, then we must go. We must send. And here's what is overwhelming about that is the last thing and then we're done. The task is urgent. Here's the truth. We are God's plan A for taking the gospel to the world. The church is and there is no plan B. And here's some statistics for you. At most, currently, one-third of the people on earth claim to be Christians. At most, one-third do. That means that there are at least five billion lost people on the planet. A missions research company called the Joshua Project estimates that only half of those people, half of those five billion, have little or have good access to the gospel. Half of them have little or no access. 2.5 billion people have no access to the gospel. There are over 6,600 people groups that have never heard the gospel explained to them. And that's people groups that have at least 10,000 in them. So there are 2.5 billion people around the world that need to hear the gospel for the very first time. 5 billion that are destined for an eternity outside of heaven. And the calling on our lives is the same as it's always been. The question is, do we really believe the gospel? Because the gospel teaches that none of us were worthy of what we received. And that if we've been rescued by the gospel by Jesus, if we've been rescued by him, then we owe it to the world to take it to them. Here at First Baptist, we talk about doing that in three ways. They're not new or inventive, but they're three ways we talk about each time. First of all, we pray boldly. Pray boldly. Can I ask you to start to do something Start to read your news feed on Facebook, Twitter, watching the news at night, seeing videos on the internet. Start to do that with the eyes of prayer. And so, for instance, when you see that a radical Muslim has gone into a Muslim worship service and killed people, don't immediately start to think, what does that mean for national security? What does that mean for how we treat them? How do we do vetting processes? Don't think about that immediately. Pray for the salvation of God to move through the Muslim community. Pray that God would radically save them. I had breakfast yesterday morning. Our family did with with Gil. Gil is a, a guy that I first met on the mission field in Brazil when he was my interpreter. Uh, Gil and I have lots of stories, lots of laughs about words that I say in English that have no good translation in Portuguese. All right. I still remember that uh, I was explaining to them how we're similar and different. And so, you know, in, we have American football. You have soccer. You know, we both love those sports. And he, I said, you have, and I don't know if you've ever had the page de queijo. 
Cheesy bread is amazing. All right. Said, you have cheesy bread. We have cornbread. And Gil just looked at me like, I have no idea how to say that. He said, if I explain it, he stopped in the middle of my sermon to have this conversation with me. If I explain that to them, they're going to think it's the nastiest thing that has ever been on the planet. He said, so the way I said it to them was, it's this thing you wouldn't understand if I told you, but it is really good. So just act like you understand what it is. All right. Gil was telling me he was in the Holy Land last year. And he said he found himself in a one-on-one conversation with a Muslim leader in that area. And he said that God didn't accept Christ. He said, but I felt the Lord saying, share the gospel. Because if he didn't, he didn't know if he would ever get another opportunity to hear it. I want to be part of a church. I want to be a believer. That asks the question, how can we get the gospel to wherever it needs to go? And I want to pray that way. So I'm asking you to pray boldly for missionaries all over the world. If you're interested in how you can pray for people, you can go to imb.org and you can get all kinds of prayer resources there for missionaries on the field around the world. Secondly, I'm asking you to give generously. Listen, when we give our offering in a couple of weeks, I don't ever mind asking you to give generously to that offering because 100% of it goes outside of here. Half of it goes to missionaries all over the world, some in very difficult places. I need you to pray boldly. I need you to give generously. And then the third thing is, and I want to stress this today, some of you in this room need to think about, pray about, and commit to go. For some of you, that's short term. That's our L.A. mission trip, a possible mission trip to Denver. That's a trip to, to Brazil. I had a conversation again with a former member of this church about a trip to London in the future. Like, go. But for some of you in this room, it's more than just going on a short, short-term basis. For some of you in this room, God's calling you on your life. Young people, young adults, young professionals, people that are established in your career. God is calling you to go long-term. The International Mission Board now's theme is called Limitless. And the idea behind that is that for many years we have been um, constricted as a convention on the number of people we can send overseas based on the amount of money that's coming in. And the number of people we are sending is getting smaller each year. But there's a vision that we can have limitless people go because the world is in need of services that we can provide. And at the convention this year and through examples that I've heard since then, it's remarkable the way God is using businesses and skills to take people all over the globe. And all over the globe, they're using those skills and helping to plant churches. And so people are getting called to Bangkok and Amsterdam and London and Thailand for business. To teach a course. They're software engineers. They're tech guy. They're a doctor businessman and a company is paying their entire living wage and they're helping to plant a church while they're there some of you have skills that are needed all over the world and i just wonder if there aren't in fact i know that oftentimes there are and we just aren't available to listen if there are people in this room that god is saying i want you to think about pray about going long term I know this is the part of the sermon where everyone does not want to lock eyes with me.
But I believe that God's calling Adoniram Judson's to go. And for years we've talked about like that's the worst possible thing we could imagine. What if God calls me to the other end of the world? But when I hear the missionaries describe, it is the greatest joy of their lives. The reason we go, the reason we give, the reason we pray is because people without Christ are destined for hell. And it's our job to take the message to them. What role are you playing in that? Let's pray together.